2: The French government has called for calm after fierce clashes left dozens of demonstrators and police injured on the island of Corsica, where anger over the assault of a nationalist prisoner has reached a boiling point. Police reported 67 people were injured in protests on Sunday, including 44 police, following the scenes that onlookers described as akin to guerrilla warfare. Ivan Colona, who is serving a life sentence for the assassination in 1998 of Claude Arignac, Corsica's top regional official, has been in a coma since he was beaten on March 2nd in jail by a fellow prisoner. The incident has stoked anger on the island, where some see Colona, who was arrested only in 2003 after a five-year manhunt that eventually found him living as a shepherd in the Corsican Mountains as a hero in the fight for independence.
0: Eric King is an anarchist prisoner who was arrested in September 2014 after he carried out a solidarity action to support the Ferguson uprising. We speak again today with his lawyer, Lauren Regan, about the harsh violence and repression he's faced in prison, culminating in trumped up charges of assaulting a guard, charges which he just defeated in court. In further retaliation for this court victory, he's now being moved to a maximum security facility with only two years left on his sentence. This week, Regan describes the recent incident of abuse King suffered at the hands of guards. She tells the story of the trial itself, highlighting the pattern of guards closing ranks in moments like this. Regan points to the broader picture of what motivates guards to lie and what makes people often want to believe authority figures instead of their peers.
1: I don't think that the system, the prison system, ever thought that Eric King, as this little guy, was going to be able to like drag it out into the light. You know, I don't think that they thought he was going to have a trial. I don't think he, they thought he was going to be able to tell a jury, you know, or file a federal lawsuit because nine out of 10 people don't have access to legal support like that, unfortunately. And usually it boils down to, their word against, you know, the guard's word, which, you know, just in the olden days of doing police misconduct, you know, it was our client's word against a cop's word. And more often than not, the juries would just almost have to believe the cop because to believe the victim instead of the cop would make their whole system of safety less strong You know, and so if you're going to believe in a system where cops are going to make you safe, if you are then forced to acknowledge that these cops lie and abuse their power and set somebody up and physically assaulted them and all of those things, like that's a scary place for a lot of people to be. And, and that was exactly what we asked that jury to do for Eric King's case. You know, the Bureau of Prisons put on a bunch of witnesses, including Lieutenant Wilcox, that got up there and literally said, I never laid a hand on Eric King. I asked him, are we good? And he sucker punched me in the face. And then other guards would take the stand and say, I saw Eric King swinging wildly. You know, another guard would take the stand and say, like, you know, each cop had a different story. No two of the prison guards had a consistent story, um, which obviously in a lot of ways illustrated that they were lying and covering up for each other and couldn't remember their lies from one time, one storytelling to the next. Whereas Eric, from the moment this happened, like literally within 24 hours of this incident happening, he was on video being interviewed by special investigative services. And he told the whole story on camera of what happened to him. And in the four years since that moment, when he was recorded, his, his version of events has not changed an iota which in general is a sign that someone is telling the truth it's also a sign that they were highly traumatized by what happened and they are holding on to those memories really strongly which you know i think the flip side is like these guards are so often punching inmates in the face and using physical abuse and power abuse against prisoners that they can't keep them straight, you know, for themselves. So all those guards took the stand and told different stories. And we cross examined each one and tried to point out to the jury, you know, in the five times that they gave statements, they gave five different versions. And let's talk about what their motivations might be, you know, like, if this guard, admitted he punched eric first he would have been fired he would have been disciplined he wouldn't have got workers comp he would have lost his retirement you know there were all these reasons why um you know this guard had a motivation to lie. And then Eric took the stand on his own behalf, which is also super, super rare in a criminal case, especially a federal criminal case. To have the defendant take the stand on their own behalf is just really, really rare. But we felt like, given the fact that we were using a self-defense defense, um, that there was no better person to look these jurors in the eye and to tell what had happened than Eric himself, and he just did an incredible job. He was genuine. He was trustworthy. Sometimes he would, you know, kind of crack a joke so that the jury could really see who this human being was. And ultimately, uh, we did closing arguments where we, you know, so the prosecution goes first for closing arguments. And the prosecution, the U.S. Attorney's Office, started off their closing arguments by analogizing this case to a wedding. And they went on about how, like, you know, when you go to a wedding, some people remember the dessert and some people remember the flowers. And it doesn't mean that one is lying or or not. You know, it's just that they remember different things. And so then when I got up to do our closing, I was like, this was not a wedding you know this was not a wedding for eric king this was a physical abusive assault then you know kind of did our closing argument tying everything together like all the conflicting statements and stories by the government and the very straightforward story by eric and they didn't have explanations for like where did the black eye come from uh you know the lieutenant who claimed he never laid a finger on eric had medical records showing that he had a hand injury. Uh, You know, there were just all these things that we kind of detailed in our closing argument. And then the government gets the final word in closing arguments. And so then the other US attorney got up to do what's called the rebuttal closing, sort of the second bite at the apple. And she goes back to the wedding analogy. Like she, it was so scripted and, standardized, like you could tell this was a closing that they probably used for all their inmate cases. And she didn't realize that I had just sort of ripped a new one in this wedding analogy. And instead of trying to pivot and do something different, she decided to drive the wedding analogy across the line. And it just flopped, you know, it really flopped. And so then the jurors deliberated on Thursday, they deliberated all day on Friday, You know, a couple of times we were called into the courtroom because the jurors had questions. And ultimately, like at 530, they asked a question that seemed very positive for us. It was around the self-defense jury instruction. And at 610 p.m., uh, the court informed us that the jury had a verdict and they came in and they pronounced Eric not guilty. And then Eric started sobbing and we were all just so freaking relieved and thrilled and so happy for him and just was a wash of joy and relief, I would say. There was quite a bit of stuff that was not Um, shared with the jury during the trial. Um, For instance, you know, I mentioned that um, Eric endured a huge amount of physical punishment um, when all those guards came streaming into the storage closet. And one of the things that happened to him is that he was brought to what's called a four-point room, which is where your hands and feet are strapped to this cement table and you are forced to basically just lay there chained, no water, no food. Uh, He ended, you know, he ends up being there for over four hours. I think it might've been like seven and a half hours, I think is um, the total time that he's strapped to this chair, to this cement bed. He ends up urinating himself. After seven hours, they allow him they you know they chain his wrists and ankles but they allow him off the off the cement bed um and literally like you can't feel your hands you know your circulation is you know really really messed up after that but while he was chained to the cement bed one of the captains and another man came into the room where he is strapped down And the captain starts hissing at him, I could kill you now, we could have you raped, you know, you're going to get sent to this next prison, and we're going to have you raped. At one point, the captain takes a plastic shield and puts it over Eric's mouth and nose so that he struggles to breathe like he literally was fully thinking that he was going to be killed. You know, if he wasn't killed in the immediate aftermath of the assault, this was a time where he is completely vulnerable at the mercy of these humans that have all the power in the world. And now there's like the captain of this facility smothering him while another guard looks on. And it just so happens that this, you know, normally when someone is in four point restraints, there's a rule that a video camera has to be set up and the human is filmed continuously while in four points. And this segment of time mysteriously disappears from the video record and the government admits that they have lost several segments of this required videotape. And a number of different rules are broken by the BOP while they're exacting this revenge on Eric. That was particularly horrifying. Uh, you know, He's then brought to a segregation cell at a different part of the Florence prison complex. And, you know, there's feces and bodily fluids all over the cell that they toss him in. And at one point, Lieutenant Wilcox's son, who is also a Bureau of Prisons correctional officer, comes and stands outside of Eric's cell and just stares at him, you know, and apparently just menaces him from, uh, from outside the cell. Uh, so he definitely thought, you know, for sure that he was going to die. In all of our briefing on this time frame, we basically called this the torture sequence. And we basically tried to argue that all of this torture and illegal violence that there's no denying occurred to Eric King. We said that this was evidence that they were retaliating against him, that they were covering up for, um, for Wilcox, that they had a motive, that they were biased against him, you know, all of these things. And the judge ruled that that torture sequence was excluded from the jury; that it wasn't relevant to who punched who first in the closet, and so that entire aspect of the case was excluded from them. And then, on the first morning of trial, so on Monday morning, March 14th, um, you know, Eric is really excited about finally having his day in court. You know, we had you know met every day for the week before. He was excited to be able to wear street clothes after eight years you know, get to his wife, uh, you know, embroidered little love uh, symbols onto his sweaters and onto his clothing. And, you know, he was just thrilled to be out of a segregation cell and dressed in comfortable clothing with humans around him and finally having his day in court. He even said that it was like one of the best days that he's had since he got arrested. And that evening, he is returned to FCI Englewood, and he is told that he is going to be sent to a suicide cell where they are going to have him under 24-hour lights and 24-hour monitoring. And basically what we learned is shortly after Eric left for court that morning, guards came into his cell and rounded up all of his property, which included all of our attorney-client privileged legal documents. So all of the materials that I had given to Eric in preparation for trial were now in the hands of the BOP on the first day of trial, including uh, notes that Eric had taken for himself regarding his own testimony. Um, And we had not disclosed to the government that Eric was going to take the stand or not. We didn't have a duty to do it. And we were leaving that sort of as like an unknown, but the guards came in and collected up all of his Highly confidential trial prep materials. And so on day two, we informed the court that this had happened, and the judge was visibly furious. At the BOP and asked them to explain themselves. And they really didn't have an explanation. They kind of tried to say, like, security, you know, just trust us, believe us, you know, security. And um, the judge, you know, kind of gave them a tongue-lashing and they made one of the Bureau of Prisons um, staff people come and on the record state that to their knowledge. There hadn't been any duplication or scanning or sharing of these materials. You know, we'll never know whether that's true or not. You know, I'm certainly not going to believe them. They've lied continuously throughout this case. So, you know, the fact that they brought in some BOP person to say, honest judge, we didn't scan anything or look at anything. We just collected it all up and we were going to move him to a suicide cell. And the judge is basically like, don't do that again. And so then on day two, Eric goes back to FCI Englewood again, and this time he finds that his cell has been flooded and all of his property, including the legal documents and his family pictures and all of his personal items, books and other things have been destroyed. And at this point, he is told that a bird flew into his cell. And knocked over a cup of coffee and knocked some toilet paper into the sink, which was slowly dripping, which caused the sink to fill up and then flood the cell. And sorry, it was an accident. And luckily, at this point, each night after court, we were driving from Denver out to FCI Englewood to check on Eric and to help ensure his mental health was doing okay, and just trying to like help keep him focused and grounded and you know, trying everything we can to support him while he's like enduring this really stressful trial process, but then also having the BOP in a petty retaliatory manner, try to with him and throw him off his game and cause him to like lose his focus and cause him to like freak out and give them some justification to harm him in some way. And so when we go out there, you know, on night two, he is sobbing and beside himself because his entire Cell has been destroyed and all his photos and all his books and everything is destroyed. So then on day three, we show up for trial and we're getting ready to tell the judge, like, you're not going to believe this judge, but you know, here's another round of retaliation against him. And before we can even stand up and tell the court that this has happened again, the Bureau of Prisons and the US Attorney's Office says. Your Honor, you know, we just want you to know that like there was a situation last night, but we promised it wasn't our fault. You know, blah, 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 blah. Inmate King attempted to flood his own cell to make us look bad was basically the gist that they attempted to like say in open court. And so then we were able to like get up and say, actually, you know, these BOP staff people and we gave their names, came to our client and said, a bird flew into his cell, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like we laid out all the details of what Eric had been told by correctional staff when he returned from trial that day and the judge was livid. He literally said something like, in my 11 years on the bench, I have never seen such outrageous conduct on, the ha- on behalf of the BOP in the midst of a trial. And I don't know if this is an accident or not, but at some point, this is beyond belief and is beyond coincidence, uh, and he says that into the record, but outside of the hearing of the jury, and so all of this stuff that happened every single day of trial, retaliation, and I, you know, it was just beyond belief because you would have thought that the BOP knew that they were under the spotlight at this given time period. And you would have thought that they would have attempted to be on their best behavior, but they literally think that they function with such impunity that they could blatantly and overtly mess with this criminal defendant prisoner with civil rights lawyers and in a courtroom and not get called to account for it and and not be you know held responsible for it at all and you could tell like the US attorneys were just sort of looking at these BOP clowns like what the hell are you doing to our case like what kind of buffoonery is going on here where is leadership, you know, where is accountability? Like, you know, you could just kind of tell that like they were sort of looking at, at the back of the courtroom, like really fellas, this isn't how you're going to conduct yourself while this like national trial is taking place. And so the jury didn't get to hear any of that either, but to Eric's credit, he had the integrity and strength of a person with just incredible internal resolution, I guess might be the word. Like, you know, he obviously was gravely upset by this. It was triggering and traumatizing. He was scared each day that he was going to be killed rather than returned to the courtroom. But he just managed to, like, somehow find the focus to give everything that he had to the trial because he literally i think realized that it was like a life or death situation for him if he was convicted and sentenced to another 20 years there was a very serious chance that he was not going to walk out of that prison system alive and so um you know again like i just can't give him enough credit for why this case resulted in an acquittal. It was you know, largely his integrity and his personality, his humbleness in being able to look at those jurors and tell what happened that I think ultimately caused the jury to rule in his favor. What is next? Unfortunately, right now, Eric is in transit. We knew that as soon as the trial was over, that he was going to be transferred out of FCI Englewood's shoe, which is a positive thing for him. He has spent over a thousand days in dismal segregation conditions and, you know, getting him out of there, you know, generally was viewed as positive. However, you know, transit is always scary and not fun for a prisoner, and we are not sure where he is going to end up from here. So hopefully in the next week or two, if people go to support Eric King, which is his support website, there will be a new mailing address and a new location of where he is going to be able to hopefully receive mail and he will li- likely have like lost all of his property. So I'm sure there will be like a renewed book list. You know, he's an avid, avid reader. And so, you know, I know his uh, support team works, you know, zealously to try to like fill all of his book request needs and all sorts of things like that. So that will be coming into a more clear form, I think in the next couple of weeks. And in the meantime, you know, people need to stay tuned The upshot is that Eric's got a little less than 18 months left on his sentence before he gets to go home. We just, you know, really, really hope that he is able to stay safe, that he can finish out this time in a calm, peaceful manner. Um, I know that's what he, you know, really wants. There has been a history of the BOP purposefully putting him into situations with white supremacists and Nazis and for any of your listeners that don't know, you know Eric has the word antifa tattooed on the side of his face. Um, so it's hard for him to hide his politics in a prison system that has a lot of like race gang affiliations where you know he as a white person is viewed as a traitor and you know I mean the race dynamics in prison could be a whole conversation on their own. So we're kind of crossing our fingers and toes that he has a safe transition to his next location and that things will be okay for him in that location. Uh, You know, we will obviously have his back. The civil case will continue to move forward and will, you know, likely be going on for the rest of the time that he's in prison. The goals of that lawsuit are to hopefully make the Bureau of Prisons system slightly safer and more accountable for the human beings that are, you know, forcibly imprisoned within it, you know, we are looking at different potential remedies, including, you know, there's now a federal law that is being um, facilitated that will require Bureau of Prison staff to wear badge cams. Uh, we certainly don't think that that's a solution because, of course, the guard controls the on and off button to that camera, and. One thing that we've seen a lot of within the Bureau of Prisons is miraculous loss of video and loss of photos and you know other types of documentary evidence that would help inmates or help prisoners um, and that would shed light on abuse by the prison system itself and they control you know that uh, entirely so we don't think that that is a total fix but at least. I think shows that the public at large, that society is starting to realize that in the same way that police brutality and police misconduct has sort of revolutionized um, as a result of citizen videography and that level of accountability that we all recognize that this is so likely to also be happening within the prison system, but it's being hidden. And I think, you know, the other part of it that I know your listeners in particular deeply understand is like, you know, people like Eric King and other people who are incarcerated, they are fathers and brothers and friends and community members who hopefully are going to be getting out of prison and returning to society. And if part of, you know, quote unquote, paying their debt to society is enduring physical and emotional abuse that causes deep, Trauma, those human beings are returned to our communities even more broken, you know, and even more harmed than when they went in. And that does not provide any benefit to society
0: at all. This has been Kiteline. You can follow Kiteline Radio on all social media platforms. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at KiteLineRadio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.